that we pray. Amen. So before we dive into this series, I, I want to give an introduction to what this series will be and why we are studying a book on the spiritual gifts. So first off, we're going to be going through this book, Spiritual Gifts, by Dr. Tom Schreiner. And just so you all know, I'm kind of technic- not tech- technologically disinclined, so I'm just going to be showing you books and not making slides most of the time. And you'll just have to listen to me lecture like the olden days. Um, but the bulk of the teaching I'm going to be giving is through this series. It comes from this book and from this man um, whom I'm, I've learned quite a bit from in my time in Louisville. And so there, there are a few reasons why I think it would be good for us, to, for us as a body to spend the next seven or so weeks thinking deeply about the spiritual gifts and the place they have in the church. First off is that coming off the last book study we did, which remember was, let me see if I can get, Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Ortland, which argued for utilizing the concept of theolog- theological triage, or the, the idea that doctrinal differences between Christians should be placed in different categories or tiers that denote the nature of the difference. So my hope is that by studying this book on the spiritual gifts, and we specifically get into the debates on whether or not certain spiritual gifts have ceased or continue to function in the church today, it is my hope that we practically practice some theological triage. And we will see over the course of this study, I think, that it is harder than it may seem to differentiate between second and third order doctrines, if you remember what those are. Which I think particular beliefs on the spiritual gifts definitely fall into both of those categories. So I hope we get to practice and see theological triage at work for our congregation, and it helps us think deeply about some practical implications of doctrinal differences. But another reason for the study, and Schreiner touches on this in his introduction in his book, is that Reformed evangelicals, especially cessationist evangelicals, which full transparency, I am a cessationist, and this book is going to argue and teach from a cessationist perspective, which, briefly, cessationism is the the belief that certain gifts, and more specifically the miraculous or, or spiritual or signed spiritual gifts that are present in the New Testament have now ceased to function. So one nature facing us cessationists is that we sometimes have neglected to teach on the spiritual gifts at all because we either focus solely on this debate and teach what the spiritual gifts are not, or we may just be afraid to to endeavor in the topic at all. So one thing we can miss then is if we focus solely on the cessationism debate, is we can potentially lose out on knowing how the spiritual gifts are given to each Christian so that we can serve and edify the body of Christ, which is the purpose they were given to us. So this series will deeply dive into the arguments for cessationism and continuationism, especially in the last half of our study. But it is not merely a study on those issues, and I think that's important. Schreiner rightly gives a good amount of time teaching what Scripture teaches on spiritual gifts 
And so over the next three weeks, we will look into detail at, each, at what each gift is in the New Testament. We will go through ten key truths Shriner gives um, regarding the spiritual gifts. And then we'll look into answer some common questions on the spiritual gifts. Then we'll get to the juicy stuff, the, the, the miraculous spiritual gifts debate. But I do want us to recognize today that we probably wouldn't be talking about spiritual gifts in the scriptures and the role they play in the modern church, at least in this way, if it was not for the massive rise and influence of the charismatic and Pentecostal movements in American evangelicalism. So today, what I want to do, before we get into the bulk of Shriner's book in the coming weeks, is I want to give a brief history of the charismatic and Pentecostal movement to, to help us understand where these beliefs on the spiritual gifts come from. And then, hopefully, if we have time, we'll, we'll dive into chapter one of the book, which, which Schreiner gives 10 strengths and 10 weaknesses of the charismatic movement. But before we go there, I want to ask the question, why do you think it's important to remember that a theology of spiritual gifts is not a first-order issue? using the categories of theological triads. Yeah, there, there are some, and we'll get into that. But I do think Roxanne's point's very well taken, that it is not necessarily a matter of salvation. And so it's helpful for us to think charitably about other evangelicals and their beliefs regarding the spiritual gifts. So I think it allows us to be charitable to those who disagree with us on a non-essential doctrine for salvation. Although I do agree, which we'll see here today, there are times when that line is blurred. And if not, that was pretty much the right answer. So great job. So let's just move on to the history of the charismatic and Pentecostal movement. And for you, those of you that don't know, I wanted to be a history teacher for a long time. So I get to kind of practice my dream job for a Sunday. Um, but I'm getting most of the information from two books. And the first one is The, the American Evangelical Story by Douglas Sweeney. It says Bobby File on here. I got it from him, so thank you. Very good book. Um, Douglas Sweeney is a professor at TED's Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And also, The Old Religion in a New World by Mark Knoll, who's a professor at Notre Dame. I recommend these books heartily. They're very good. Um, and this is where I'm getting the bulk of the information. Um, but as we begin our study of the history of this movement, like any movement in the church, it's always hard to know exactly where to start and where to begin. But most scholars agree that the roots of the charismatic movement began in the 1830s, in America, in what is called the holiness movement. So you're taking notes. This is an important, an important movement, the, the holiness movement. So in the 1830s, some Christians from diverse areas of the country and across denominational lines were growing concerned over a perceived compromise of morality and holiness in the, in the broader church at large. And this was due to many factors, but Sweeney argues the most pressing was that Christians became... In their view, Christians became too comfortable in their American context, and they laxed in their killing of sin, and they slowly but surely became more and more like the, the, the world, like the culture. 
And I think that that is still a danger for us today in our own American context. But the denomination this, this holiness movement most accelerated in was America's Methodist Church, which makes sense given some of the teachings of their founder, John Wesley. So Wesley and the early Methodists believed in a doctrine known as perfect love or, or Christian perfectionism. And this belief teaches that in the process of sanctification and the Christians battling with sin, the Christian could potentially receive a supernatural second blessing from God. And the second blessing is thought to be a receiving of supernatural grace that, that lifts the Christian into higher levels of obedience and holiness. And this belief would have a profound impact on the moral reform movement that we're talking about, known as the holiness movement in the 19th century. The holiness movement had both personal purity, personal piety aspects, and, and public righteousness components to the movement. And in this teaching, there was a long list of do's and don'ts, both in individuals' lives of Christians and for Christians' engagement with society. Perhaps the most popular and important holiness teacher and the one who repackaged the doctrine of, of Christian perfection or Christian perfectionism for a mass market was a lady named Phoebe Palmer. Yes. We're going to get into the, the classically reformed view of sanctification in a little bit, so I think that will probably answer your question. Um, but to answer it, the, in my understanding of sanctification and final glorification, is there is no guarantee for, or the guarantee is that every Christian is going to struggle with sin until they die or Jesus comes back again and we receive the final glorification. So the danger here is they're saying, no, this can happen on earth. This perfection, your, your perfect obedience to Christ, can happen this side of heaven. So the first character we're going to examine, I think we're examining six, is, is Phoebe Palmer. Phoebe Palmer, extremely important lady. She was born in New York and grew up in the Wesleyan Methodist tradition, which, and she joined the Allen Street Methodist Church in New York City in 1831. And by all accounts, a major revival broke out there, and it centered around a women's Bible study and prayer meeting Palmer hosted on Tuesdays at her house with her sister. And the focus on these meetings was the promotion of holiness and the second blessing theology that we just talked about. It's hard to articulate just how influential these meetings were. Palmer led these meetings for nearly three decades, had massive amounts of women come through her home, and this even led to others to start similar meetings across America and even in places as far as India and New Zealand. And eventually men would start to come and hear her teach and became one of the most sought-after evangelical public speakers at revivals, camps, colleges, and seminaries across the country in the 19th century. She taught in England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and Canada, and she wrote the best-selling book of 1843 called The Way of Holiness. She was, without a doubt, a Christian superstar in the evangelical world. And interestingly enough, I had never heard of her till last week. So. so what exactly was she teaching that became so popular? 
Well, it was a distinct and new version of, the, of this classical Methodist teaching of Christian perfectionism and second blessing theology. And what made Palmer's teaching new is that, and this is important, traditional Methodist teaching taught the second blessing of entire sanctification of the perfect love could take years and years of prayer and struggle to experience. You know, it's, it's Wesley famously even said that, that he never experienced the second blessing. And he taught some saints won't experience this perfect love until they die. So unfortunately, what Palmer did, Palmer taught that Christians no longer had to wait for the second blessing, but could receive it instantly if they gave their life by faith to God to complete their sanctification. And I don't even really understand how or where she got this belief. To be honest, I read some of her teaching. And I came away very confused by her interpretation of some key passages. But I'll read a quote for, of hers from the Sweeney book that highlights her teaching. And notice the, the immediateness a Christian can receive perfection in this life. So this is Palmer. She writes, On everyone who will specifically present himself upon the altar... For the sole object of blessing ceaselessly consumed, body and soul, and the self-sacrificing service of God, he, that's God, will cause the fire to descend, and he will not delay to do this for every waiting soul. For he standeth waiting, and the moment the offerer presents the sacrifice, the hollowing, consuming touch will be given. Just so soon as you come believingly and make the required sacrifice, when the Savior said, it is finished, then this full salvation was wrought out for you. All that remains is for you to come complying with the conditions and claim it. It is already yours. If you do not now receive it, the, the, the delay will not be on the part of God, but wholly with yourself. And so for the record, this is a dangerously man-centered and terrible, and I mean terrible understanding of Scripture. But th this idea of a second blessing after conversion that, that Christians must experience will prove to be very huge in the creation of Pentecostal theology, which we'll see in a moment. But important for us is that the, the holiness movement didn't just explode in Methodist circles, but it also influenced portions of broader evangelicalism, including the Reformed community, with the teaching of Charles Finney. So the second character in the story is Charles Finney. Finney was one of the most important and famous revivalists in the Second Great Awakening in the 19th century, who, who was famous for largely manufacturing revivals and popularizing the, the belief that people have autonomous free will to choose salvation. He was a Presbyterian, and his teaching obviously diverted from classical Reformed theology. Finney ministered around the same time as Phoebe Palmer and taught his own form of Christian perfectionism, but in a, in a very distinct way from Palmer. So Finney, coming from a more Reformed and Presbyterian background, rejected the belief of a second blessing, but nonetheless, he taught that Christians can attain perfection in this life by the continual mortification of their sin. This is sometimes called the overcoming life or higher Christian life. Fundamental to his teaching was that he believed Christians had the natural ability 
to attain perfect sanctification in this life. Sweeney argues Finney was using and distorting a teaching from Jonathan Edwards on humans' natural abilities. And so this is what Finney taught all around the country, and he was also an incredibly famous and popular Christian teacher during this time. So Finney's teaching obviously goes against the classical reform view of sanctification, right? Which rightly teaches that, that our perfection does not come on this side of heaven. We will wait and struggle until our dying day to combat sin in, the, in our hearts and in our lives. And Finney was teaching a massive distortion of the, the precious Reformed doctrine of sanctification and, and final glorification. Finney's holiness teaching had one big effect on our history of the charismatic movement. It popularized the holiness movement teaching on Christian perfectionism in non-Wesleyan or, or non-Methodist circles. Finney's teachings really expanded the reach of the holiness movement that, that the holiness movement would get in the broader evangelical world. And the, the holiness movement gained greater institutional power in America after the Civil War with the formation of this, it's a very long association name, so bear with me, the National Camp Meeting Association for the Promotion of Holiness. It does not roll off the tongue. But this organization, they organized and had a 10-day long revival that concluded in the formation of a formal association that would organize holiness camp meetings around the nation, specifically in the Northeast, which is sadly ironic because 150 years after this, I would say the Northeast characterizes the furthest thing from, from holiness in our country. But this group soon founded a publishing house in the 1870s, a missions organization, and thankfully for all of us, they changed their name to the much shorter National Holiness Association. And this functioned as a type of denomination. The holiness movement with, with this organization became even more mainstream in American culture, which is very important to the charismatic story. So hold on to that. But the holiness movement also jumped across the pond in the 19th century. A lady named Hannah Whittall Smith exported holiness doctrine to Britain in the 1870s and published a remarkably influential book called The Christian Secret of a Happy Life. She organized a conference around the holiness doctrines and teaching, and over 8,000 pastors and theologians attended. And because of the remarkable success of the conference, they instituted a permanent holiness conference that is known as the Keswick Convention, spelled K-E-S-W-I. CK, but I think it's pronounced Keswick. And I think that conference still goes on today. I'm unsure, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that conference still goes on. And Keswick is important because it toned down some of the dangerous, borderline heretical views of the former perfectionist teaching and taught a more palpable to the masses teaching on victorious Christian living. And so I would still argue that these teachings are wrong. They are just less wrong. The teachings from this conference are sometimes called higher life theology. And we're not going to get into all of Keswick's teaching, but if you want to learn more, you can read this book, which is very good. It's called No Quick Fix. I think there's two copies in the library you should get. 
by Andy Nacelli, and it's a, just a, a thorough beatdown of higher life theology in a gracious way. But Sweeney writes of the impact of, of Keswick. He, he writes, by the early 20th century, upwards of 10,000 people gathered in Keswick every summer, and this is important, and many leading American preachers imported Keswick themes back home. The most popular of these is probably D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody from Chicago. Um, he, he embraced and popularized holiness teachings. And by the beginning of the 20th century, the holiness movement was utterly mainstream in the culture, with its teachings impacting many denominations in American evangelicalism. And this is the soil where Pentecostalism was born. But before we move on to Pentecostalism, any questions or comments on the holiness movement? You know, in, in my research, I didn't find any, well, first of all, there wasn't like a, a uniform position for the movement, but there was all these different churches and leaders that were teaching similar doctrines. So I think in some cases, it might have been the case that they had a stricter view on salvation based on your the the uh, receiving of the second blessing and some like I know D.L. Moody would would not believe that um, just it's something that you could attain in this life if that makes sense yeah yeah I yeah I agree and and P.B. Palmer also was doing a similar thing during her revivals, of laying your life on the altar. She had a, a theology called altar theology. That's the thing I was reading that made no sense to me. Um, but essentially, she believed Jesus was the altar, and if you laid down your life at the altar, you will receive the second blessing, no matter what, because Jesus is the altar, and so you come to the altar. It's bizarre. But yes, I think you're right. So Pentecostalism. One of the important things to realize about the rise of Pentecostalism is that it began on the fringes of American evangelicalism. So remember, the, the holiness movement started with a small, radical segment of Methodists who broke away and created their own churches and small institutions that, re that reflected their, their radical views on sanctification. Over time, these teachings grew more popular and the hard edges of almost unorthodox beliefs got smoothed over to fit within orthodoxy, and eventually holiness teaching began to influence all of evangelicalism by the beginning of 20th century. That's what we just said. So with the rise in popularity of the holiness movement, it led to another small minority of more radical Christians within an already radical movement inside the holiness movement who grew dissatisfied with the direction of the holiness church of, at large. I hope that makes sense. It makes sense in my head. But notice, do you see this, this cycle that it's a, that's occurring? We're going to see something very similar happen in the Pentecostal and Charismatic movement in our present day. So the, the, the most radical members of the holiness movement adherents, particularly ones in the south and rural Midwest towns, they began to grow dissatisfied with the direction and teaching of the holiness movement at large. Sweeney writes of these radicals, he, he says, many holiness adherents convene outside formal church structures. In some, radical holiness people, sick and tired of mainstream apathy and longing for the restoration of an apostolic faith, determine once and for all to come out from them, that is the holiness movement, 
and, and larger evangelicalism and separate. Right? Another distortion of 2 Corinthians 6.17. And so it was in these fringe groups in the already relatively radical holiness movement that Pentecostalism arose. Sweeney argues that some of the practice with spiritual gifts that, that Pentecostals are known for, such as speaking in tongues and prophecy, um, they, they predated the 20th century in churches around the world, but it was very rare, very rare. But it was with the rise of Charles Fox Parham that Pentecostalism took off. So our, our third character, Charles Fox Parham. Parham was a, a Methodist pastor who left the Methodist church in 1895 to become an independent evangelist. He taught as a product of the holiness movement that full sanctification resulted from a second blessing coming after conversion. But he also, he also began to teach something new, a third blessing Christians would experience after conversion. And he would call this third blessing baptism by, or, or sometimes baptisms with, the Holy Spirit. For Parham, after a Christian experienced this proposed third blessing, the, 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 the soul would experience complete infilling by the Holy Spirit, and you would reach your full potential to live a holy and completely spiritual life. And this would become the first major teaching of Pentecostal, Pentecostalism. And Par, Parham would be an influential teacher and leader that would spend the rest of his life fleshing this idea out and teaching it to the masses. Another aspect of Parham that made him unique for the time although he wasn't the only one, but, but he would also practice faith healings. And he emphasized this aspect of his ministry so much that in 1898, he moved to Topeka, Kansas, where he founded a place called the Bethel Healing Home. And this was a place where he basically invited folks that were in, desperate, in a desperate physical state and sought divine help to come and stay and be prayed over to experience healing. Of course, as you probably know, one distinctive of Pentecostals even to this day is an emphasis on supernatural healing, particularly through the gifting of a single charismatic, charismatic in the traditional sense, um, leader. So Parham, during the same time, also started the Bethel Bible School, where he started training young men and women with his Pentecostal teachings. A couple more of the teachings that he's popularized um, was the belief that the Holy Spirit was going to outpour his power in a unique way before Christ's return. So it's been documented that Parham would teach his students to expect miraculous power to be present in their life. As in his belief, the Holy Spirit's going to, to pour forth his power on Christians before the return of Christ, which he thought was very close. And again, I think this is a really bizarre understanding of Scripture. Um, but this isn't the craziest thing he taught. Perhaps the most important belief Parham taught, which is the hallmark of Pentecostal theology, at, at least at this time, is that the only evidence one could have that they had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which remember for him, uh, that happened after conversion or after salvation, the only evidence for this supposed baptism was through the supernatural gift of speaking in tongues. And this changes everything and distinguishes him completely from the broader holiness movement that he was from. Now, in my limited research, I do think Parham believed the gift of tongues was not unintelligible ecstatic utterances, which is the first thing 
you and I probably think of with this gift. But rather, I, I think what, what, what I was reading is that he believed the gift of tongues was supernaturally knowing a language that you had no previous knowledge of. And we're going to have a whole Sunday in a few weeks just on this one gift of tongues. So we're not going to get all the way into it here. But I do think it's an important piece of information to know that what Parham was talking about with the gift of tongues was, was known languages. Sweeney argues that Parham taught this special end times pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which manifest, manifested itself in the gift of tongues, was primarily for the spread of the gospel abroad. So the functions of the gift would be, or the, the function of the gift would be that missionaries wouldn't need to undergo any language training at all. Right? They would just instantly know the language of the culture they were in by being baptized in the Spirit and manifesting this gift of tongues, which is also the evidence of the third blessing or the baptism in the Spirit. And this is all happening, according to Parham, because Jesus is about to return. Parham is getting this from a very obscure interpretation uh, in the book of Joel. And notice the, the premillennial eschatology that, that's tied to this belief really closely. I, that's something I learned this week that I didn't know. So, as the story goes, an apparent revival breaks out at his school in the late 1890s, and about half of the students display the gift of tongues, and Parham becomes a massive, overnight, popular sensation. Several thousand people would begin to make way to Topeka to experience and learn from his, his ministry and his teaching. And in 1905, Parham moved to Houston, Texas, where he began planting churches in the suburbs, and he opened another Bible school in Houston. And at this time, he had uh, a, a decade had passed, right? He had a more systematized belief system around his Pentecostal theology and a well-packaged training seminar that he could deliver in 10-week classes. So the effect was he was able to train a lot more people in a quicker amount of time, more effectively. And that's exactly what happened. And he began to train multitudes of people in his novel theology on the spiritual gifts. And perhaps the most important student at the school, at least for our study of the Pentecostal movement, was a man he taught named William Seymour. William Seymour. Seymour was definitely a very interesting man to learn about. He was an African-American former slave who was blind in one eye and bought, by all early accounts, a very terrible public speaker. But Seymour bought in fully to Pentecostal teachings of Parham at this school in Houston. And Sweeney had a great quote in his book on the dramatic rise of Seymour. He writes, Seymour quickly became convinced of Parham's Pentecostal teaching and went on to surpass his teacher in Pentecostal leadership. No one, would have, no, no one ever would have guessed it but less than a year after Seymour enrolled in Parham's training course, he became the world's most famous Pentecostal ever. I think it's a, it's a very bold claim, but in, in all my research, I think it's accurate. In, in 1906, Seymour, he left the Houston school and he moved to Los Angeles, California, where he began preaching at the Santa Fe Holiness Mission, which was a holiness church. His first Sunday, he preached from Acts 2. 2-4, arguing that tongues were the evidence of being baptized in the Spirit, and apparently the local holiness mission did not appreciate this radical teaching because when he went back to preach that evening for the evening service, he found the doors of the church padlocked. 
So this highlights, though, this highlights how the Pentecostal teaching was deemed as radical even by the radical holiness movement. So Seymour didn't give up after the setback, but he began holding services in different individuals' homes uh, in, in the community in L.A. And apparently one service on April 9, 1906, at one Baptist couple's house, the gift of tongues manifested or, or erupted or, or something occurred as Seymour and quite a few other worshipers began speaking in tongues. This news spread in the community and everyone wanted to come see this former slave turned preacher speak in tongues and, and preach. And ex as he claimed, right, he was claiming that he was experiencing a new baptism in the spirit that was proved, that was evidenced by his speaking in tongues. And so crowds grew and grew to come see Seymour preach that he soon rented out an abandoned warehouse on Azusa Street where, according to Mark Knoll in his book, Seymour would hold, this is crazy, he would hold three services a day, every day of the week, for over three years. And I'm bad at math, but that has a lot of, a lot of services. Uh, so this moment in church history had become to be known as the Azusa Street Revival. Um, and this was massively influential um, for the rise of Pentecostalism in the rest of the nation. So news spread of this occurrence in L.A. across the nation, and many early Pentecostal teachers and leaders traveled through Azusa Street to witness what was occurring. And as a result, Pentecostal teaching began to spread like wildfire across the nation. It's truly remarkable just from a sociological perspective of the rise of religion. Um, of course, it's also sad given some of the danger and damage of some Pentecostal teaching. One other social, sociological reason I've seen every historian I've read mention for the rapid rise of Pentecostalism, which, which was very rapid and, and radical, and we've seen this, was the movement was pretty radically multi-ethnic. This is very obscure in the age of segregation. Um, but white, black, Hispanic, they were all welcomed and key leaders from the movement, at least at the beginning, um, key leaders from the movement all came from these different ethnicities. They did segregate in the, the 40s to 60s um, in, in the larger denominations. But this was important. This was part of their early theology. The harmony of the races or ethnicities was evidence for them that God was bringing his one people together in a special way before the return of Christ. So this multi-ethnicity, just at a sociological level, led to a greater number of people being influenced by this theology. It wasn't just a white, black, Hispanic religion. It was all-encompassing. Also, another sociological reason for the rise Pentecostalism promoted women preaching and, and women to exercise their gifts of healing and prophesying publicly. Of course, this is a generalization not every Pentecostal did. But Sweeney details that by 1918, 21% of the licensed preacher in Pentecostal assemblies were women. That's a pretty staggering number for the time and for um, just in, in Christianity in general. But this reality combined with women beginning to work more and more outside of the home potentially could have led to, to growth and, and the popularity of Pentecostalism as, as more feminist ideology grew more and more influential in America. So as Pentecostals, 
Pentecostalism grew, they also institutionalized, and they formed their, their own denominations, their own institutions. The biggest denomination is the, the Assemblies of God. Um, but today, there, there are thousands of different Pentecostal denominations worldwide. Pentecostals would create their own publishing houses, their own seminaries, their own missions organizations. They became a part of mainstream evangelical, evangelicalism. And after World War II, something occurred similar to the holiness movement, and this is important. Pentecostals generally showed a greater desire to be accepted by other lar larger denominations and their social network um, in the country. So they began softening some of their teachings that were so radical at the beginning. So some Pentecostal denominations began to teach that tongues, though alive and active and good and something you should seek, they would teach they, they weren't necessary to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So you see the distinction that was starting to be made and some of this softening of their teaching. So as a result of this softening, Pentecostals became more and more accepted by the larger evangelical community. And Pentecostal teaching started to influence and creep into every single denomination in the nation, which is what we now call the, the charismatic movement. So before we go into the charismatic movement, any questions, comments about Pentecostal movement and the rise of it? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Something I just learned studying this, I didn't realize how, how, those, how closely those two were tied together. Um, but it does make sense in some of the, some of their teachings. Anything else? All right, well, let's move on to the charismatic movement. It's our last little movement to learn about. So charismatics, for our purposes, are, are those individuals who have taken Pentecostal teachings and practices into non-Pentecostal congregations. Sweeney argues that since the mid-20th century, charismatics have taken Pentecostal teachings into other denominations with a passion. He writes, quote, Every major Christian tradition in the world and every sector of the globe has now come under the sway of Pentecostalism. I think that is absolutely right. Two leading evangelical figures in the 19th century highlight this, this charismatic change. Or Oral Roberts, a hard name to say. Oral Roberts was a pastor who left the, the Pentecostal Holiness Church in 1968 to join United Methodist Church, and he took the Pentecostal teachings of faith healing and speaking in tongues with him. This had a profound impact on Pentecostal practices becoming a part of mainline denominations in the country. Pat Robertson is, or, or was, I don't know, an ordained Southern Baptist pastor who started the, the Christian Broadcasting Network, the CBN. Everyone probably knows Pat Robinson. He ran for president. I didn't know that. He ran for president in 1988. Uh, so he was very popular. This had another profound impact as he has been broadcasting to the nation, which reaches evangelicals of all stripes with explicitly charismatic teachings on his programming. And Sweeney argues that it's clear that since the 1980s, Charismatics have been attempting to slide closer and closer to the center of evangelicalism. And he highlights the Calvary Chapel movement as being the main influence in this regard. So the Calvary Chapel was started by a man named Chuck Smith, who started an independent church in the 1960s in Costa Mesa, California. He prioritized teaching and reaching out to hippies and surfers, what is properly known as the Jesus People movement. Sounds like a great time, maybe. I don't know. 
mass amounts of young hippies, non-traditional folks came to faith in Christianity, and, and Chuck Smith utilized this community to form the Calvary Chapel Enterprise. Calvary Chapel's influence is also staggering to, to learn about. So Smith founded a series of Christian communes, that sounds scary, a Christian music company um, called Maranatha Music, which has recorded and produced quite a few popular contemporary worship songs, and he created a network of Calvary Chapel churches that are still in existence today. The popular recording artist um, Phil Wickham comes from one of these churches. Does anyone know who Phil Wickham is? No? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like Phil Wickham, but, so, yeah. But Smith taught a charismatic doctrine that the New Testament miraculous gifts were operative today, but rejected many Pente Pentecostal teachings of the necessity of them in sanctification. So you see his softening of the, the position. In fact, one of Smith's protégés, John Wilbur, got more convinced by Pentecostal teachings and grew more radical than Smith and split off from Calvary Chapel to form the Vineyard Church, which is also in California a really big church. So both Sweeney and Noel in their, in their book they, they both argue pretty convincingly that all American evangelicals were influenced by the ministry of both Calvary Chapel and Vineyard Worship today. So tell me if this sounds familiar, if you've heard this before. So the Calvary Chapel and Vineyard movements emphasized a come-as-you-are attitude for worship, using casual dress and modern pop and rock song structures in the corporate worship service. This was pretty revolutionary for the time, at least according to Sweeney. And Noel, and look, I'm kind of dressed casually, so I'm, I'm a product of this movement as well, I guess. I think the, today the majority of evangelical churches follow this same pattern of corporate worship. But the charismatic even influenced the Reformed world. Sovereign Grace Ministries was started by, by C.J. Mahaney, who was a product of the, the Jesus People movement in the 1960s. He created a, a network of churches that are very popular, a sort of denomination that are all explicitly charismatic, but all hold to Calvinistic doctrine. Mars Hill Church was a massive megachurch in the early 2000s led by Pastor Mark Driscoll, who was also a hugely influential charismatic Calvinistic church who would encourage members to exercise their gifts of prophecy regularly. So the point is, in our current moment, Charismatic teachings and practices are everywhere and have influenced everything in American evangelicalism. That's probably an overstatement, but I think it would be helpful for us to make the distinction that, that not all that would call themselves charismatic or who promote charismatic teachings are unorthodox. Remember the radical teachings of the early Pentecostal movement that we learned about are not necessarily what evangelical charismatics like Sovereign Grace churches like C.J. Mahaney, that's not what they believe. Now having said that, I think there are many issues and dangers with the charismatic movement in our context. And so, in chapter one of Shriner's book, he gives ten strengths and ten weaknesses of the charismatic movement that we've just described. And so we do have time, so I'm just going to go and, and list them off and give a brief explanation that, that's coming mainly from Shriner, so this is not coming from, from me. And I think it's important. Shriner's doing this because he knows this topic of spiritual gifts is divisive, and sometimes it's just downright nasty. And he, 
He doesn't want to be overly polemic in his argument for cessationism or for the ceasing of these gifts. And Schreiner literally takes most of these strengths and weaknesses from J.R. Packer's book, Keep in Step with the Spirit. So if you don't like any of these, you can take it up with J.I. in heaven. So positives. What can we learn? Or for any questions about charismatic movements before we go on to this great list? No. I did a sufficient job of teaching. It's good. All right. So positives we can learn from charismatics. And I'm going to go through these quickly. If you want to see them, you can just come see me after. I can give them to you. Number one, spirit-empowered living. Packer writes, emphasis is laid on the need to be filled with the spirit and to be living a life that one way or another displays the spirit power. Sometimes non-charismatics functionally ignore the spirit in total in fear of not falling into charismatic teaching. We've talked about that already. Number two, emotion finding expression. There's an emotional element in the makeup of each human individual which calls to be expressed in, in, in any genuine appreciation of welcome, welcoming an, of another's love. Whether it to be loved of a friend or a spouse or the love of God in Christ, charismatics understand this, and their provision for exuberance of sight, sound, and movement in corporate worship caters to it. Three, Packer's third one is prayerfulness. Charismatic stress the need to cultivate an ardent, constant, wholehearted habit of prayer. I think a lot of movements do that, not just the charismatic movement. But Number four, every heart involvement in the worship of God. So charismatic insists that all Christians must be personally active in the church's worship. I think Packer's point is that that corporate worship is not something the clergy dispenses to the congregation, but every member should be active in worship, which he argues charismatics understand this. Number five, charismatics have a missionary zeal. I think this, clear, this is clear if you look at the reality that Pentecostal charismatic movement is the worldwide largest Christian movement right now. They're sending the most amount of missionaries that's according to two studies I read. There could be studies that say otherwise. I'm open to that. But they clearly have a, a zeal to take the gospel to the ends of the nation, which should be praised. Number six, positive, small group ministry. Packer says, like John Wesley, who organized the Methodist societies around the weekly class meeting of 12 members in their class, charismatics know the potential of a group. Number seven, it's related to this, communal living. Charismatics extend the sense of family and churches. Again, I'm not convinced this isn't true of other denominations and other movements, but Packer may be running out of good things to say about charismatics. I don't know. <laughs> Number eight, joyfulness. Charismatics insist that Christians should rejoice and praise God at all times and in all places, and that their commitment to joy is often writ large on their faces just as it shines bright in their behavior. Number nine, and number nine and ten come directly from Schreiner, not Packer. So number nine is real belief in Satan and the demonic. Charismatics take the demonic seriously. And then number ten, real belief in the miraculous. So Schreiner says, we still believe that God can do miracles, but sometimes we live like deists. 
as if God weren't active at all in this world. Charismatics don't make this dangerous mistake. So those were the positives of the charismatic movement. Now there's 10 negatives or 10 weaknesses in the charismatic movement. And these are longer. So number one, elitism. In any movement in which significant seeming things go on, the sense of being a spiritual aristocracy, the feeling that we are the people who really count, always threatens that gut level. Schreiner points out this is the exact problem Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians, where those who spoke in tongues saw themselves as spiritually superior. Number two, sectarianism. Sectarianism. This is the, the absorbing intensity of charismatic fellowship countrywide and worldwide can produce a damaging insularity whereby charismatic limit themselves to reading charismatic books, hearing charismatic speakers, fellowshipping with only other charismatics, and only backing charismatic causes. I think this is, of course, a danger with any movement within Christianity. But charismatics can become so insular, they're not willing to learn from the rest of the Christian world on anything. Number three, anti-intellectualism. I'm going to read the whole thing because it's really good. Anti-intellectualism. Charismatic preoccupation with experience observably inhibits the long, hard theological and ethical reflection for which the New Testament letters so plainly calls. Schreiner writes, the emphasis on emotions can slight and degenerate the importance of careful thought. Careful interpretation of scripture and orthodox theology are too often ignored. In scholarly charismatic circles, the inerrancy of scripture is denied quite often. And in popular circles, people may rely on revelations from God for their daily life, in effect, denying the sufficiency of scripture. That is a huge danger. Number four, illuminism. Some claim in the charismatic world that God speaks directly to them, and they aren't open to any correction or questioning of such claims. The focus on contemporary revelation may compromise or even contradict, contradict the teachings of Scripture. It's a massive issue. Number five, I like how Packer calls this, charismania. Packer means by this that the measure of one's spiritual health growth and maturity is measured by the extent of the charismatic gifts they display. Which goes against, again, 1 Corinthians 13, which says all of these gifts, including the miraculous gifts, are worthless without what? Love. That's exactly right. Number six, super, it's another good one by Packer, super supernaturalism. Super supernaturalism. Charismatic thinking tends to treat speaking in tongues in which the mind and tongue are deliberately and systematically disassociated as the paradigm case of spiritual activity in the Christian's life with the ordinary regularities of the created world. Or Sorry, I messed that up. As the paradigm case of spiritual activity and to expect all God's work in and around his children to involve similar discontinuity with the ordinary regularities of the created world. So basically, speaking in tongues, miraculous gifts, that is the paradigm for essential good spiritual health, ordinary means of grace, reading Bible, ordinary killing of sin. Uh, something's wrong with you. That's a big danger. 
Number seven. Oh, man, I didn't write down the word. Number seven, Shriner writes that, per, that many charismatics, not all of them, but many throughout the world espouse a health and wealth gospel, which is blatantly contrary to New Testament teaching. Number eight. Remember, this is critiques of charismatic. Demon obsession. So some charismatics see demons in every event and identify every sin and struggle with a demon. Right? That, that, there's a huge danger there of not owning one's own sin and sinful nature and blaming things on demons and, and other supernatural events. Number nine, conformism. Peer pressure to perform, hands raised, hands outstretched, speaking in tongues, prophecy, is very strong in charismatic circles. Um, I was going to tell a story here, but I don't have time, but it's a good story, so you can ask me after. Uh, last one, number 10, experience-centered. And I'm going to read the whole thing again because it's so good. Experience-centered. This is Schreiner. A danger in the charismatic movement and in evangelicalism generally is a focus on experience so that experience takes precedent over and trumps Scripture. Powerful experiences of God are a gift of God, but Scripture must play a foundational role so that experience is not accepted as self-authenticating. Experience is subordinate to Scripture so that experiences do not become the arbiter of what is permitted. Instead, Scripture is the final authority, and experiences are only to be accepted if they accord with Scripture. Amen. I think that is exactly right. And one of the biggest dangers of the charismatic movement is elevating the, the personal feeling, the personal experience of the individual at the expense of what Scripture teaches. So any questions? We only have like two minutes. Any questions, comments about those lists from Packer and Schreiner? Do you like them? Do you think they're helpful? Yeah? Good. Me too. Um, so now that we've understand a little bit of the history of the Pentecostal and Charismatic Movement, which I'm sure there's much more that could be said. I'm not an expert. Um, but I think we're next week we're ready to move on learn just exactly what the spiritual gifts are that we see in the New Testament. So we're going to go into detail in each spiritual gift, um, what they are, how they, would, how they affect the life in the local church, and I'm super excited to do that. So thanks for listening. Y'all are dismissed.